Okay, this morning we're going to just start a, a two-week study in the book of Haggai. It's, uh, the book of Haggai is just two chapters long itself. But before we uh, dive into the text, we need to do a little bit of setting the scenes, kind of a bit of a history lesson just to, to get us going if we can. We find that Haggai is one of three post-exile prophets of Israel. What do we mean by post-exile? Well, we'll be looking a bit more in detail in just a moment, but you remember that there was this occasion when Nebuchadnezzar came up against the southern kingdom and took them all the way captive to Babylon. That's the, the period of time that's referred to as the exile. And after that time, the Jews come back to their own land and Haggai is one of three prophets that prophesied during that period of time, along with Zechariah and Malachi, the Italian prophet. There. The name Haggai means my festival. Um, it's actually quite apt because he only has a very, very short innings, as it were. Um, just four months is the span of his prophetic career. Um, festival, we understand, as being a kind of a short celebration. And that seems to be the way um, that Haggai's ministry is played out. A very short but uh, exuberant and important part in the nation's history. He has a profound effect on the nation. And he comes onto the scene at the right time and in the right place. This isn't just a, this chap decided one day he was going to say a few things to Israel. You know, or he'd been thinking about it for a long time. And you know, This was God-motivated, God-inspired. The, the particular time that God chose, Haggai speaks to the nation. And actually, it wouldn't be um, too far wrong to say that everything that happens in the nation of Israel from that point really stems from the events that we read in the book of Haggai. It was a major, major turning point for the nation. Just looking at a, a panorama there of the, the history of Israel, or the history of the world, we can argue up until this point. Um, Genesis, the book of Genesis covers most of the Old Testament in terms of time, going from the creation, through the fall of man, through the flood, and then to the time of Abraham, and leads us up to the point of the, the exodus of Egypt. Um, we find at the end of the book of Genesis, uh, we find that Joseph is put in a coffin in Egypt, and then that coffin, uh, at the time of the exodus, is picked up, and they take that coffin out, and the, the, the Jews then march off in, into the promised land after their 40 years of wandering. And then, really, that's when the nation of Israel is born. The rest of the Old Testament covers that time span, really up to the end of the exile of these three prophets we've just mentioned. There's then a period of 400 years that really takes us up to the time of Jesus and the cross. Um, it's referred to by some scholars as the silent years. Uh, it's not really correct because actually we find that this period of time is prophesied in incredible detail in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 11, we have I think it's 135 prophecies in just a few verses. It's amazing. Um, and that time is all prophesied for us. And then we get the New Testament, which really goes to the end of the first century. Uh, and obviously during that time, the temple uh, that had been rebuilt, which we'll be talking about in this study now, uh, that temple is then finally destroyed and the Jews are dispersed around the earth up until 1948 when they were regathered as a nation. So that's kind of our span of history. That's the point of time we're focusing on, though, uh, for the book of Haggai, this time of the exile. Now, just a little bit of history for us. The first king of Israel uh, is Saul. Uh, the people cried out. They wanted a king. They'd had enough of um, God being their, their direct ruler. And they wanted a king like the nations around them. It's very interesting. You find an incredible parallel when you look at the history of the church. The church did just the same thing. They got to a point around about the third century when they wanted a man to rule over them. And we see the beginning of the papacy. Uh, and there's an incredible parallel between the history of Israel and the history of the church. Then David comes onto the scene, the one that was the man after God's own heart, had been appointed by God, anointed and ordained to be the king. Uh, and that's actually prophesied way back in Genesis uh, chapter 38. Uh, actually encrypted in the text, we have a list of names uh, that culminates in David. God um, had already designed for David to be the king over the nation. David's son Solomon we're aware of. But when Solomon dies, the kingdom divides. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, basically has the option of telling the people he's going to be really nice to them and look after them, or he's going to be, be harsh. And, and that's what he does. He takes the advice of his young friends and says, you know, you think my dad was bad? Well, you wait and see how I'm going to rule over you. You know, he says, uh, you know, my dad may have chastised you with whips, but I'll chastise you with scorpions. And that didn't go down all that well with the people, as you can imagine. 
So the kingdom divides, and half of the, the kingdom, well, I say half, more than half, follows Jeroboam. Uh, this uh, chap that had been around in the days of Solomon, he fled off to Egypt, and now he comes back and leads this revolt. Um, and God had promised Jeroboam that actually if he were to be faithful, then the Lord would establish a dynasty for him. But he wasn't. So this all takes place around about 985 BC. This is uh, about a thousand years or so before Jesus. And it all recorded all those events and the, the subsequent things in the book of First and Second Kings and 2 Chronicles. The northern kingdom makes up ten tribes specifically. Uh, and you can see divided there. It's the top part of that map. Um, they are the ones that follow Jeroboam. And Jeroboam realizes we've got a bit of a problem here. Because if... We don't do anything. Every year the people are going to go back down to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices to the Lord. Well, if they do that, they might then think, well, why bother having two kings? We might as well just join back with Rehoboam and bring the kingdom back together. So he sets up two altars. One here around this area in a place called Bethel, which is just around about there. And then one at the top here in Dan. Sets up two pagan altars, effectively. And makes this the place where now the northern kingdom will go and worship. Well, those in the north that wanted to serve the Lord didn't like that idea. They moved down south. Those down south that really weren't too bothered and thought this actually might be good fun, we can have other gods we can worship, they went up north. And we have this this mixing and merging of the tribes. And you may have heard of a a myth. uh, It's referred to as the ten lost tribes. Uh, What they say is that these northern tribes, the ten tribes specifically up here, at the time of the Assyrian invasion, which was about 722 BC, they got taken away and got dispersed and we don't know where they are. It's not true at all. Uh, We find that the the faithful from the north came south and vice versa, and that's actually recorded for us in Chronicles as well. If we look at the history of the kings of Israel, there are all the kings involved. Starting with Jeroboam, God had promised him this dynasty if he was faithful, but he wasn't faithful. His son reigns for just two years, and then we have a change of dynasty. And then Basha reigns, he has, his son comes onto the throne for just two years, another chain of dy- change of dynasty, then yet another. And then we find with Omri, we go down through Ahab. This is the king that is on the throne during the time of Elijah, uh, followed by Elisha and these prophets all through this period of time. Uh, and then we get to this chap, Jehu, another change of dynasty here. Uh, and God promised him, because he'd been faithful in destroying the prophets of Baal that had been set up by Ahab, God said that his descendants of the fourth generation would sit on the throne. And this is exactly what we find. Albeit, Zechariah here, this king, reigns just for six months, another change of dynasty, and then another, and then another. And then we finally get down to King Hoshea, who's the king when the Assyrians come in and they take the northern kingdom captive. That's the history of the northern kingdom. I remember some time ago, John did a study for us uh, when we were back at the landmark, looking at the, 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 the characters of the kings of Judah, the kings of Israel. And there's not a single good king amongst the kings of Israel. In contrast, the kings of Judah, we just have one dynasty. Obviously Solomon, David, Solomon, then Rehoboam, then all of these are descendants. It's all just one family. And this goes all the way down to Jesus. Now, the ones highlighted in green, these were the good kings. These were the ones that were faithful. Just five out of all those that are there. The Southern Kingdom, or Kingdom of Judah, uh, outlived or outsurvived the, the Northern Kingdom uh, the, uh, during the reign of Hezekiah. Uh, that's when you can see that Israel went into captivity. At that time, the uh, Assyrian king wanted to come and destroy Judah as well. And we read this incredible account where one night one angel went out and slew 185,000 of the Assyrian army and they went home, tail between their legs. And uh, they didn't come back again. And uh, that was uh, an incredible, incredible victory, if you like, that God wrought for Israel at that point. But then we go down. And we're just going to focus now quickly on that last portion, these last kings. Josiah was a good king, very faithful. Uh, and it's during that period of time, particularly, that Jeremiah is the prophet. Now, Josiah dies in battle against Pharaoh Necho. A very strange and interesting uh, set of events that lead to that. Necho, Pharaoh Necho, is on his way up north to march against the king of Assyria, who are Israel's enemy. And Josiah goes out against him in battle. Why? Well, 
I'm not going to go into that this morning, um, but there's a very interesting conjecture all surrounding the Ark of the Covenant, which it would appear to be that Pharaoh Necho had in his possession at that time. Uh, and Josiah has re- prepared the temple to receive the Ark back and put it back in its place. And it seems to be on his way out against Necho to go and recover it. But that wasn't God's plan. And uh, Josiah then dies in that battle. We then find that his son, Jehoaz, reigns for just three months before Necho, on his way back, then takes him back down to Egypt. So, another one of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim, he becomes king, and he reigns for 11 years. In the third year of his reign, which was 606 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, this young man, his dad at that point was still on the throne, um, Nebuchadnezzar marches against Jerusalem and lays siege against it. And that's when Daniel and his uh, compatriots, his friends, are taken back to Babylon. That's the first siege of Jerusalem. As a result of this, Nebuchadnezzar then sets up um, Jehoiakim um, on the throne, but only for a very short period, for just three months. And then he's taken to Babylon himself. And there's a blood curse that is put upon Jehoiachin, or sometimes referred to as Jeconiah. Now that's interesting because in Jeremiah 22.30, we're told that none of his seed would sit on the throne of Israel. Now that presents a bit of an issue in regard to how the Messiah is going to sit on his throne. And yet there's an incredible twist that we find in Scripture. We haven't got time for that this morning, as to how God brings this line down through, not through Solomon, but through Nathan all the way to Jesus, one of uh, David's other sons. So from a blood perspective, Jesus didn't come through this line, which is one thing. But also, we'll find in a minute, one of the characters that we'll be looking at in the book of Haggai was the grandson of Jeconiah. He was legally entitled to sit on the throne of Israel, but he doesn't. Again, fulfillment of this blood curse. The more you look at scripture, the more you start to see these details that are interlinked and how they could just not be the result of one man's efforts or writings or some sort of scheme or plan. It is too intertwined and complex. And again, remember this is written over thousands of years. So, Jeconiah is taken um, to Babylon and then his uncle... And the third son of Josiah, Zedekiah, becomes king. And he again reigns for 11 years. And that takes us up to the third siege in 587 BC. Now, to look at this uh, period of the captivity in a little more, more detail, we have the first siege, as I said, in 606 BC. The second siege actually fell in 597 BC, and that's when Ezekiel was taken away captive. And then the third siege, 587 BC. So we have these three sieges in total, and the third one is when Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple's completely knocked down, and Jerusalem is just left a heap of rubble, exactly as had been prophesied. This we find, though, the first siege, starts a period of time that we refer to as the servitude of the nation, and it lasted exactly... 70 years. This is what we read in the book of Jeremiah. For thus says the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. Now, notice what this prophecy is regarding. It's about the people. This prophecy is the servitude of the nation. It's not the land, but the nation. I make that distinction as you'll see why in a moment. And again, very clearly we find 70 years. Now we find, actually, it was 70 years to the day, based upon, and we've talked to these things before, a 360-day year. Whenever the Bible deals in prophetic years, it always deals in 360 days. Now there's some very interesting, interesting conjectures uh, surrounding that, not least that there's very, very compelling evidence to suggest that the Earth was once on a 360-day orbit. Um, various things have taken place that have shifted us from that into the 365-day orbit that we now have. And we can talk about that maybe some other time. So, that servitude of the nation, 70 years to the day, brings us to 537 BC, which is when this relatively young king, by the name of Cyrus, who becomes one of the great kings of the um, Persian Empire, by this time he's two years into his 
conquering of Babylon. In 539 BC, he'd come in and it had been prophesied actually in the book of Isaiah that um, they would take the city without a struggle, without a fight, and that's exactly what happened. You find recorded in Daniel chapter 4 about Belshazzar's, uh, or, sorry, Daniel chapter 5, I think it is, uh, Belshazzar's feast. And on that night, when he's drinking out of these cups that they bring in from, from the, the Jewish temple, and etc., at that point, they're marching in. The, the Persian army march into Babylon. Um, they, they block off the river so that the water level falls, and then they can march under the gates. These are just facts of history. Uh, and they took the, the, the city without a battle. In fact, there's uh, records, uh, Josephus and other record, that um, for two days or so, many of the inhabitants didn't even know that had been this political change. Um, so there had been no, no fight, no, no conquest in, the, in the, the military sense, but they had taken over control. Two years after this point, in 537, Cyrus signs a decree, allowing the captives that had been there to return to their homelands and to worship their own gods. And that we find recorded on what's referred to as the Steel of Cyrus. That object you can see there is this little clay... Um, Cylinder. Uh, it's actually now up in the British Museum. You can go and see it. It's there. Uh, it's, not, it's not as big as you think. It's only about that long, I suppose, by about that, that at all. Um, but on, on that particular block, uh, this incredible declaration that these captives could return home, and obviously the Jews then uh, take this as their mandate to go back to the land of Israel. Now, the third siege also starts a period of 70 years. This we refer to as the desolations of Jerusalem. Not to do with the people, but to do with the city. Because the city itself was finally destroyed in 587, the city of Jerusalem. Again, we have that recorded in Jeremiah. This time, Jeremiah 25.11. We read there, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Again, so they're talking now about the land, and again we have that mention of the 70 years specifically here. And again, to the very day, which brings us to 518, uh, we have this 70 years played out. And that is when we have the decree of another Persian king, a little bit later on, uh, Darius, or Darius, you have to apologize, I apologize, I, I use both names when I'm speaking. Uh, so if I say Darius once and then Darius next time, I'm talking about the same person. I just listen to some American commentaries and some English commentaries, and I get very confused. So, same person. Uh, but that was in 518 B.C., That then will lead us up to this period of time that we're specifically looking at now for the book of Haggai. That's just a summary of the kings of Persia. Cyrus actually became king in 559, but it's in 539 that he actually took Babylon. Um, And this is the time he appoints this this character. Um, Guberu, we know from history, the biblical record has him as uh, Darius. Uh, This is a different Darius to the one we're talking about this morning. This is the Darius of the lion's den incident and all those kind of things we read about in the book of Daniel. He's only in power, if you like, uh, as a subordinate to Cyrus for a very short period of time. Um, But Cyrus, in 530, eventually uh, he dies and the throne is then passed to his son, Cambyses. Uh, That's mentioned in the book uh, of uh, Ezra. He's the chapter referred to there, Ezra 4, as Artaxerxes. Uh, and work on the temple is stopped. That's going to be very important in a moment we'll look at. And then we have a, a kind of a fake king. He pretended to be somebody who wasn't, only eight months. And then we get to this character that we're interested in this morning here, uh, referred to as Darius the Great. He reigned from 520 to 486 BC. And then these other two kings, I mentioned this one briefly. That's the one, uh, Daniel chapter 9 prophecy, uh, if you're familiar with that. This is the king that actually signs that decree which starts that incredible prophecy that we read about in Daniel chapter 9. So that's a bit of the background. So we go into chapter 1 of Haggai. And with a little bit of history done, we now read, in the second year of Darius the king. Okay, So this is now the second year that this king has finally been on the throne. And before we read the rest of the verse, just a touch more to fill in some of the blanks that we're going to otherwise have. We notice straight away that the dating is now reckoned from a Gentile king. All through the Old Testament, they date it from the kings of Israel or Judah. But there are no kings of Israel or Judah. So the dating now is reckoned from this Gentile king. And we realize that we're now in this period of time that Jesus refers to as the times of the Gentiles. 
Now that period of time begins actually in 606 BC when Jerusalem lost their sovereignty. And that's when the, the Babylonian invasion takes place. That's the area that Babylon had. And that period of time carries all the way through um, up until a time that is yet future. That's Babylon's empire. Persia's empire is significantly larger. It covers nearly all of the Middle East uh, and Egypt and uh, down through parts of Africa as well uh, and up into Europe and Greece, etc. And that's the area that uh, Darius was ruling over. But meanwhile, back in Israel, again, said Cyrus had signed this decree in 537. The Jews had returned home, but only about 50,000. It's amazing. We've got so many Jews had left... Only 50,000 return home. Nothing is done in regard to the temple in Jerusalem for around about two years. So they go back, 537, nothing's done. And we read in Ezra, chapter 3, verse 8, Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, Joshua, the son of Josedak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests, and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward, to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. So they're back. Two years have passed, they've done nothing, but now they say, let's get on, let's try and rebuild this great temple. So that takes us then, two years off that that figure, brings us to about 535 BC. The next five years, as exactly has been prophesied in the book of Daniel, were troublous times, real problems occurred. We read in Ezra 4, uh, verses 1 to 5, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity build the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. Just a Bit of background there. When the northern kingdom had been taken away, they'd have the real problem in the land because the, the land suddenly become inundated with lions. Um, and the king of Assyria then said, well, let's send one of the priests back. And they said, so hold of other people, not Jews, but other people to live in the land. And they send the priests back to teach the people of the land the ways of the God of the land. This is the birth of what we refer to as the Samaritans. They were based in Samaria, but they weren't strictly Jews. They were people that had come, been sent by the king of Assyria to go and live in the land, to, to try and occupy it, to stop problems and everything else. Um, and it was during this period of time um, that we have this birth of the Samaritans as they, these, these pagan cultures embraced the Jewish religion, but not entirely. So these people now find that the real Jews have come back and they say, let us help you. We worship the same God. Well, Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, You have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel. It's kind of like a saying, He's not your God, He's our God. As King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us, referring back to this decree. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in bringing. Uh, sorry, troubled them in building, and hired counsels against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So these Samaritans, because they can't help, then decide they're going to do whatever they can to stop this building program. Now, Cyrus's son, Cambyses, you saw from that list a moment ago, becomes king in 530. And this seems to be the point that the Samaritans seized the opportunity. You see, Cyrus had granted permission for them to go back and to rebuild and everything else. But now that Cyrus is out of the way, they go and petition Cambyses and say, oh, you know, the Jews always cause problems. And they had this temple and they didn't worship you know, your gods or they were disobedient and they wouldn't serve the kings they were under. And Cambyses makes a search and he finds that indeed there had been problems with the Jews in the past. So he calls a halt to the building program. And that was recorded for us in Ezra chapter 4, verse 21. And that lasts for another 12 years, which brings us up to 518 BC. Again, that's where we're looking at this morning in the book of Haggai. 
Now, for those of you who are good at maths, if you add that, those figures up there, we've got 12 years, 5 years, and 2 years, makes a total of 19 years. Deducts that from the 537 and brings us to our 518. Now, the interesting thing is that we have 19 years there. Why is that interesting? Well, because again we start to see the precision of prophecy. Remember, we looked at this just a moment ago. We've got the first siege in 606, lasts 70 years, and brings us to the decree of Cyrus in 537. The third siege in 587 goes through 70 years and brings us to our 518. Now here, we have 19 years at the start between the two the first and the third sieges. So, of course, if these two periods are the same length, we should have exactly the same length there, and we do. And that's the 19 years that we've just spoken about. But what the, um, the point I want to try and get across here is that God had foreordained that the temple was going to be built at this point. And it's at that point, this man, called Haggai, comes onto the scene. It wasn't just a, a random moment or anything else. This was being defined by God. Now, the thing that should strike us here about this particular moment is, what is God doing with us? You know, we may think that, oh, now's not, not the right time. Now I'm too busy doing this or doing that. What is God calling us to? God has a program. God would have done this without Haggai. He would have done this without the Jewish leaders. Could he promised already that he would? But God gives us opportunity to be involved in the things that he's doing. So now, we read on. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jesedek, the high priest, saying. What we have here, these names. Zerubbabel means sown in Babylon. That's where he'd been born, born out in the world, as it were. He was the grandson of Jehoiachin, of the royal line. He was in a sense, destined to be the king of Israel. But Cyrus appointed him just to be governor over the land. He never becomes king. Again, to do with this blood curse, the prophecy being fulfilled to the detail. Joshua, we find also, was the son of Jesedek, who was the high priest at the time of the Babylonian invasion. So these two characters now, they, their grandparents, or their parents here, had been there at the start when all this took place. So there had been real memories, stories told to them, no doubt, of how great the temple had been. And Haggai now comes and says to the leaders, first of all, what are you doing? You know, it's that kind of moment when the boss comes and you're supposed to have done a report or whatever. And he says, so uh, have you done that? And there's that moment of, um, well, um, and you hope the phone rings or something. Verse 2, thus speaks the Lord, the host, saying, This people say, the time is not come. The time that the Lord's house shall be built. See, they've become victims of discouragement. The surrounding nations have kind of put them off the task, and they've just kind of given up on this mandate they've had to go back and rebuild. They're back in the land, but have settled for something other than God's best. And the enemy had intimidated them into submission. Really what's happened here is that man's word prevailed over God's word. And how often do we find that that is the case in our own lives? That maybe we feel that the Lord is calling us to do this or to do that. And we really feel that's what we should do. And yet the circumstances around us discourage us. And then someone says to us, oh surely you don't think that that's what God would have you do? Or Man's word here prevailed against God's word. So God speaks first through Haggai to the leaders. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet saying, this is to the people. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lying waste? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. See, God now addresses the people directly. The panelled walls here, by the way, that sealed houses, uh, is this probably reference to the wood that had been destined for the temple. When they got back to the land... They started this program of gathering the materials and they'd gone up um, to, the, uh, to the, get some of the cedars of Lebanon and uh, elsewhere and bring this wood back for the rebuilding of the temple. But then obviously everything had come to a stop. What do they do? Well, they used this wood then that had been destined for the temple for their own houses to decorate and furnish the inside of their own dwellings. And God is saying, you know, is it time for you to dwell in your comfortable houses when God's house is lying waste? 
And then we have this challenge to them. Consider your ways, which is really set your heart on the way you should go. Think about what you're doing. Is what you're doing the right thing? God is really challenging the people to really assess what they're doing, where their priorities were. And then God says to them, you know, this is kind of a bit of a wake-up call to the people. He says, you've so much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earns wages, uh, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. Does that resound with any of us? You know, this is the consequence of misappropriated resources. God had given them so much, but it was supposed to have been given back to him. And instead, they'd taken these things and used it to build their own lives, as it were. Do you have unexplained failure in your life? Are things just not going right, but you can't work out why? Well, maybe this is the type of situation you're in. You see, the Word of God tells us that we should seek first the kingdom of God. These people have been seeking first their own kingdoms and the things of God have been put to one side. Let me just read this to you. It's something I um, got sent some years ago and I've got it stuck in the front of my Bible. I'll just see if this resonates with any of you. If God has called you to be really like Jesus, he will draw you into a life of crucifixion and humility and put upon you such demands of obedience that you will not be able to measure yourself by other Christians. And in many ways, he will seem to let other good people do things which he will never let you do. Other Christians and ministers who seem very religious and useful can push themselves, pull wires and work schemes to carry out their Christian goals. But these things you simply cannot do. Others may boast of their work or their writings or their success, but the Holy Spirit will not allow you to do any such thing. And if you ever try it, he will lead you into some deeper mortification that, make you, that will make you despise yourself and all your good works. Others may be allowed to succeed in making money, but most likely God will keep you poor because he wants you to have something far better than gold, namely a helpless dependence upon him and the joy of seeing him supply your needs day by day out of an unseen treasury. The Lord may let others be honoured and keep you hidden and unappreciated because he wants to produce some choice fragrant fruit for his coming, for his coming glory, which can only be produced in the shade. He may let others do a work for him, so he may let others do a work for him and get all the credit, but he will make you work on and on without others knowing how much you are doing. And then, to make your work still more precious, he may let others get the credit for the work which you have done, and thus make your reward ten times greater when Jesus comes. The Holy Spirit will rebuke you for little words or deeds or even feelings or for wasting your time, which other Christians never seem to be concerned about. But you must make up your mind that God is an infinite sovereign and he has a right to do whatever he pleases with his own. He may not explain to you a thousand things which puzzle your reason in the way he deals with you, but if you will just submit yourself to him in all things, he will wrap you up in a jealous love and bestow upon you many blessings which come only to those who are very near to his heart. Settle it then, that he is to have the privilege of tying your tongue, or chaining your hand, or closing your eyes in ways that he does not seem to use with others. Now, when you are so possessed with the living God, that your secret heart becomes pleased and delighted with his peculiar, personal, private, jealous, jealous guardianship and management of the Holy Spirit over your life, then you will have entered the very vestibule heaven itself thus says the Lord of hosts consider your ways been quipped before but what on earth are you doing for heaven's sake where are our priorities this morning are we building with silver and gold or are we building with the straw, the wood, hay, stubble what are we doing this morning to build the house of the Lord. Of course, the question is, well, what does that mean? How does that apply to you and I? Well, we were singing this morning one of our songs. You also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You know, we're not building a physical house. We're not building a real temple with real stones. We are building a temple, a building with spiritual stones. And we're told here, 
what those spiritual stones are. They're each other. You also, as lively stones, we are the stones that are being built up. How are we building with each other? Ephesians 2 tells us, Now therefore you are no more, no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So, the challenge in Haggai verse 8, Haggai 1 verse 8, there God says to them, go up to the mountain and bring word and build the house. And I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, says the Lord. The Lord now encouraging them to get on with this work. What about us? What part do you and I play? Where do you fit in this great house? We're talking for us about a spiritual house. Who are you next to? Who do you support? Who supports you? Just some examples here. Maybe some ideas you can take away and pray through. Soon after his conversion, Billy Graham's mother set aside a period every day to pray solely for Billy and the calling she believed was his. She continued those prayers, never missing a day, for seven years until Billy was well on his way as a preacher and evangelist. His mother then based her prayers on 2 Timothy 5, 2, 15, asking that what he preached would meet with God's approval. That's a way of building with spiritual stones. But do we rather spend our time doing the practical things, doing the, the things of this life? That Okay, they're important, but do we put them in front of building with the spiritual stones? A chap called Leroy uh, Emis of the Navigator staff, the American uh, group, had a godly friend whose mother prayed one hour each day for him since he was born. This is a mother praying for somebody else's child, but she recognised that God was doing something with him, and she prayed for him daily. Jeanne <clears throat> uh, Hendricks, wife of Dallas Theological Seminary Professor Howard Hendricks, spent a season of intense praying for one of her children. During his late adolescence, her son went through what Jeanne uh, called a blackout period. He was unenthusiastic, moody and depressed, communicating only with single-syllable responses. Anybody know teenagers like that? This was one of the most traumatic times of my life, Jeanne admits. He was so far from the Lord and from us, I felt like the devil himself was out to get my child. I prayed as I never had before. During the half year when this situation continued, she covenanted with God to give up her noon meal. As soon as, sorry, as she fasted each day, she prayed for a son for one hour until God broke through to him. Building with spiritual stones. Dr. and Mrs. James Dobson fast and pray for their children one day a week. How much do we care for our children? How much do we want to see this building with spiritual stones continue? Harry Ironside, a pastor or former pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, had a mother who never ceased to pray for his salvation throughout his life. Harry would recall the substance of her pleas to God for him. Father, save my boy early. Keep him from ever desiring anything else than to live for thee. O Father, make him willing to be kicked and cuffed, to suffer shame or anything else for Jesus' sake. And then just the last example. Chuck Smith tells this story. A few months before I was born, my sister, for all practical purposes, had died. She had stopped breathing. Her pulse had stopped. Her eyes had rolled back in her head. Her jaw had set and there was no signs of life. My mother, who had just recently accepted Jesus Christ, grabbed my sister and ran to the church, which was only a couple of blocks from where we were living. There in the pastor, she laid out that limp, lifeless body, and the pastor began to pray. He said, Mrs. Smith, get your eyes off your little daughter and get your eyes on Jesus. Sorry. Uh, hard, sorry, that should be harder to do in a situation like that. She looked up to the Lord and said, Lord, if you will give me my daughter back, I will serve you all of my life. I give myself to you. I go into the, I'll go into the ministry. I'll do whatever you want me to. Just give me my little daughter back. And God touched my sister and healed her instantly. As a result of the miracle in my sister, my father came to Jesus Christ. So a few months later when I was born, my dad went down the hospital hallway saying, Praise the Lord, it's a boy! And my mother prayed and said, Oh God, I will fulfill my vow to you, Lord. 
Through this son you have given me. And there she dedicated my life unto the Lord. I did not know about this. I grew up as a normal boy doing normal things, interested in athletics and sports. I decided that I wanted to be a doctor and started taking pre-med courses. One summer I went to camp and God spoke to my heart and gave me a call to the ministry. I came home and shared it with my mother and said, I'm going to transfer over to the theology theology course. She just smiled and said, that's fine, son. I think that's good. So I went on and finished my courses and started ministering. I'd always been athletic, captain of the football team and baseball team, etc. And I really thought I had an awful lot to offer. I was strong, I was athletic, I had a lot of ideas. I had all kinds of energy and I was going to go out and turn the world upside down for our Lord. The Lord then let me labour and use up all my ideas and all my energy and all my talents and abilities. And nothing, absolutely nothing. I became so discouraged, I was so defeated, passing the prime of my youth, losing a lot of my energy, giving up on most of my ideas. One day, I just tired, I, I, sorry, I tried just about every program I could think of to get people into church, and I was at a minister's conference. I went back to my hotel room, got down before the Lord, and the Lord spoke to me and gave me this scripture. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. And then the scripture Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And we know from history what happened in Chuck Smith's life after that point. Moving on, verse 9. You looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow on it. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is waste. And you run every man to his own house. God has a claim on our life. If we claim we're Christians, if we name the name of Christ, we're told that we have been bought at a price. We now are God's property. See, God here wanted their attention. I believe that here now, God wants our attention. Has it been hard recently, for whatever reasons, whatever the circumstances? Have things been unusually difficult? You see, God says to Israel, you're finding it tough. Why? Well, I was blowing on it. I was causing your efforts to fall apart. Why? Because of my house that lays waste. You know, all the time we try and build for our own purposes, the things of God don't get done. But God wants us to seek first the kingdom, and then all these things will be added. Because he never has a house been more in need of repair than now. You know, we live at a time when the church at large in this country is a complete mess. We all know other living stones that are not being fed, that are not growing spiritually. What are we doing about it? Are we praying for them? Are we using some of those examples we've just seen? Therefore the heaven over you, this is God speaking to them, saying, it is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from fruit. And I call for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, upon the oil, and upon that which the ground brings forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labour of the hands. It's kind of, are you listening yet? God is saying, he was making life difficult to get their attention. God wanted these people to get about this task because there was work to be done that was going to affect the rest of the nation. They saw themselves, probably as we did this morning, as unimportant and what can I do? But they had a part to play. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jesedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people did fear before the Lord. The names we have just in this verse are Zerubbabel, born in Babylon. That's our experience. We're born in the world. Shealtiel is, I asked of God. That's what his name means. Yeshua, we should know that one already, just means salvation is of the Lord. And that's been our story, isn't it? That we have been born in this world. But we asked of God, and we found that salvation is of the Lord. Jesedek means Jehovah righted. You know, God's righteousness and his justice and his mercy have all been satisfied because of what Jesus did. And then Haggai, that name means festival. 
You know, I don't know what the Lord has planned for you. I do know he's something planned. I know that the Lord has things planned for myself and for joy. And I know that he's calling us, all of us, to take things seriously. To stop building our own houses. To stop focusing on the things of this life. The the things that we may deem important. And to start building with spiritual materials, spiritual things. Then spake Haggai the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message, unto the people saying, I am with you, says the Lord. I don't know what the Lord is laying on your heart this morning. I don't know whether this this morning is having any impact at all. But next week, or in a month's time, or maybe next year, maybe the Lord will bring these things to your remembrance when things are particularly tough. And God asks you that question, you know, to consider your ways. Why is it hard? Why, is it, why are things difficult? Is it because the Lord is trying to get your attention? Because the spiritual work that needs to be done. And God doesn't need you, but he wants you. He wants us to be involved in what he's doing. See, the challenge is to step out in faith with him. It's so great that God gives Israel his personal assurance. And the same for us. The Lord says, I'm with you. You I'm asking you to do something which is madness because you've got a decree of canvases calling a halt to this work. You've got the Samaritans that the moment you pick up tools, they're going to be against you again. And they will try and do everything they can to stop what you're doing. You may even be putting your lives in danger. Are you prepared to step out and to do what the Lord is calling? And that's why God says here, I'm with you. I'm not sending you out alone. I'm with you. Again, this for the Jews meant facing the threat of their enemies head on, and they didn't know what was going to happen next. They could be destroyed. But God says, I'm with you. And to bring us to the end of this chapter for this morning, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jesedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. In the four and twentieth day, the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. What day was that? It was the day that God had said that that captivity or that, that desolations were to end. No coincidence. Those people, some of those people may have turned around and said, oh, it's too hard, I'm not going to. They were the ones that missed out. You know, we have an incredible account with Gideon. Gideon, you remember the situation? This Midianite army have been destroying and taking every bit of food and everything they could have, and Israel are in a desperate situation, and God calls Gideon. And he sends him out. And he has this army of, I think it's 32,000 people. Those the fearful and afraid can go home. It's whittled right down. He has just over 10,000. And then, of that 10,000, God says, nope, still too many. So he goes and divides them into these two groups by the way they lap up water. They, they drink water from this brook. And so he has these two groups, and God says, okay, I want you to send one group home. And Gideon's thinking, well, I can lose 300 men. That's not a problem. And God says, no, no, send the other group home. And Gideon's thinking, that's not enough. I can't win with just 300. And God's thinking, yeah, that's the point. You can't win at all. You need me. And so God, Gideon sends these, these men home, and he's left with just 300. And what do the 300 do? Well, they just go and get these vessels. They put lights inside, torches inside, and they get trumpets. And they go and surround where the Midianites are encamped. And when Gideon shouts, they blow the trumpets, and they smash these vessels, and the light shines out. There's a lesson there, by the way, that the light shines from broken vessels. But all of a sudden, the Midianites look up and they see surrounding them these lights everywhere. And these trumpets are blowing. And they just assume that there's a multitude. They think that Israel have gone and got some hired help and they're going to be defeated. So they start running every which way and they flee. And Israel chase after them and they have this great victory. After that battle, I guarantee you, there were some of that 10,000 that went home, or the original 20-odd thousand that went home, that thought, you know what, I could have done that. Yeah, they could have done. All they had to do was to stand there, smash a clay pot, let a light shine and blow a trumpet. But there's only 300 that had the faith to trust God. You know, in this situation, how many of these people 
actually said, yeah, we will, we'll help. We get the impression here from what we're told, the high priest and the spirit of all the remnant of the people get the impression that they were all involved in this. They all wanted to be part. They all had faith that God would be with them. You see, what God asks us to do, this side seems so hard, seems so difficult. But when we look back, we think, that was so easy. But the real test is, are we prepared to trust God? And to take that step and to do the things he's asking us to do. 24 days that changed the nation. That was all it took, just 24 days from the, from the Lord coming through Haggai to start with to this point, just 24 days later. I wonder what would happen here if 24 days from now, after praying, after seeking the Lord, after deciding we're going to get rid of those things that really don't actually help us in our lives, the things that keep us from the things of God, the things that stop us studying his word, that stop us praying. If we decided we are going to actively, seriously pray for the house of God, pray for our brothers and sisters here, supporting each other in prayer, praying for those that we know that are caught up in other churches where they're not being taught the word and sometimes and most times being taught things that are heretical. What could God do? What could God do with you? We'll uh, pick it up from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, I pray you speak to our hearts this morning. Just as you brought Haggai onto the scene at the right time, with the right message for these people who had forgotten about the things of you, who had got so absorbed in their own lives, who no doubt wanted to see you do things but couldn't see a way it could happen, had become so discouraged. Lord, That is us. We may not believe it's us, but it is us. Because, Lord, we get so discouraged by things we've tried that haven't seemed to have worked. But, Lord, you tell us that you will be with us. Father, we don't know what your plan and purpose is, where we'll be 24 days from now. But, Father, may we choose to be where you want us to be. Lord, letting go of the things of this world to stop building our own houses and to start to build yours. Lord, we don't know how long it will be before you return for your church. But Lord, we do know there is much work to be done. And Lord, you've chosen to use people like us. Father, may we not miss out on the victory because we're fearful or afraid or because we are so concerned about the necessary things of life. May we be like Gideon's army of 300 that were mindful of the spiritual things and that trusted you. Father, speak to each of us this morning, we pray. Impress these things upon our hearts. For we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.